You know, we, we've been talking about discipling as Jesus discipled, right? And we've gone from Matthew 4.19. And he says there, remember, or help me remember, what, what does he say to his disciples? Come, follow me. And that was the first part of it, right? That was the relational part. Come and, and, and see who I am. Come get to know me. Come and learn about Jesus himself. And, and let's build a relationship. Let's get together and, and find out about each other. That's true for you and I. I think that's true for Jesus. We've got to build a relationship with him. We've got to figure out who this man is. If he is the son of God, if he's the one that came to die for our sins, then who is he? Why do I need to be like him? Well, the only way we're going to figure that out is to look at Jesus. Then he says, come follow me and I will make you, right? That was the intentional part. I'm going to make you. I'm going to spend time with you and I'm going to invest in you. And you're going to learn about me and you're going to learn about what I do. And you're going to become like me. Or you should become like me. And the, the student should look like his master, right? So, in this intentional part, we're going to take a break from the rest of that because the rest of that is missional, right? I'll make you fishers of men. There's, there's what you're going to be. But how does he make them fishers of men? This is where we're going to take a, a side trip from Matthew 4.19 into John 17. Because in John 17, there, there's another question I wanted to ask before I get started. I'm glad I was thinking that. Um, anybody following the Facebook stuff that I've been putting out there about this every week? Thank you, Kurt, Tom. Okay, that's very disappointing, too. <laughs> i got problems with you people. Okay. Was that? No, that's, yeah, some people aren't Facebook people. How many people aren't Facebook people here? I'm, we have a majority of Facebook, not Facebook people? Not. Okay, that's, that's quite a few of you. Okay. What is wrong with you? No, that, that's fine. Um, that's fine. I could also put them out on an email, too, and put them out to the study group email that I've got. Maybe I'll start doing that, too, so that I can, I can hit you with, if you're, because you, most of you get the emails, even if you don't do Facebook, so... I'll start doing that so I can, so I can get you too. But I've been, I've been trying to, to give you something to do each day, if you've been checking the Facebook thing, about well, what does this scripture say about relational and, and intentional? How, does, how is Jesus working with his disciples here? So I've been trying to give you something to think about each week. And one of those weeks was look at John 17 and look at the I messages in John 17. Is what, and what is Jesus saying he has been doing to intentionally influence intentionally put his life into the disciples and here's where we're going to take a break from matthew 419 and look at some of these intentional things that i think jesus did in john 17 the first one you find in verses 6 and 26 where he says he revealed and that was one of the ones that was read this morning i'm going to go over there really quick i'm going to read these as we go through them so that you can hear them because i think jesus is is revealing in the end here in his high priestly prayer here that this is what I did with the disciples that you gave me, God. This is what I've done. This is how I poured my life into him. And now, of course, like I said, you can probably find other ones here too, but these are the ones that we're going to concentrate on. John 17, verse 6, he says, I've made my name known to these men whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Down in verse 26, he says, I have made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. 
So in verses 6 and 26, I think Jesus is saying, I have revealed me to them. You gave them to me. And I am investing myself. I've made my name. I've made your name known to them. Let me, let me reveal God to you, disciples. Well, what did he tell Thomas when Thomas says, we haven't seen the Father? He says, you know what? If you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. So John 6 and 26, you've revealed him to them. In verse 8, he says, this is the speaking part of Jesus' intentional discipling. Because the words that you gave me, I passed on to them. They have received them and know for sure that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. Okay, so he's passed on the words that God gave him to them. So he's spoken into them. And now what are they going to do? They're going to turn around and they're going to speak what they learned from Jesus. And what they're actually, as he says in John 14 and 15, all these things that the Spirit helps them remember and gives them the words to speak. Verse 9. He talks about prayer. And he intentionally modeled a life of prayer too, didn't he? Jesus was a man of prayer. You can see him praying and praying and praying. Verse 9. I am asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those you gave me. Because they are yours. Jesus himself praying for his disciples. And I think praying for us too in this chapter. Praying for all of those who are going to believe on them. Verse 12. Protection. While I was with them, I protected them by the authority that you gave me. I guarded them. Not one of them became lost except the one who was destined for destruction so that the scripture might be fulfilled. That protection that he gave them, I think Jesus is still looking out for us. I think he's still protecting us. Verse 18, sent. Just as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So part of his intentional training is, hey guys, you're going to be sent. Eventually, you're going to go, right? And he sends them on some missions throughout his dealings with them because he's getting them ready to be sent. Next one, sanctify. For it is for their sakes that I sanctify myself that they too may be sanctified by the truth. In his intentional discipleship, he's talking about sanctification. He's talking about sanctifying them in truth. Verse 22 he shared, I've given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one just as we are one. We, we share in something great, something glorious as disciples of Jesus. We get to go out there and share what we share so that everyone hopefully can share in that. And I think those, those things, seven things there, and you could probably find more in there, but seven things from John 17, that Jesus intentionally does for his disciples as he sends them out, gets them ready to go, because he's going to do what he came to do, and then he's going to send them out to do what they need to do. And in turn, we are going to be sent out to do what we need to do. But if we don't know Jesus, then we're going out there unarmed, and we're going out there ill-prepared, and we're going to make a lot more mistakes than we need to, if we don't know him who sends us in the first place. So, just like Luke chapter 5, verse 4, where he tells his disciple, you know, push me out. They're at the surface, they're at the, the, the edge of the water, and he says, I want you to push me out. Get me out there. In fact, let, let's just go over there really quick. I, I, I just want to use this as an illustration of, of his um, getting people ready. 
He's telling Peter to push out, lower your nets for a catch. When he's finished speaking there, he's sitting there and there talking. And then he's telling, get out there. And, and Peter says, we've, we've already fished all night, caught nothing, but okay. Jesus is, is saying to you and me, I think, too, okay, we're here at the, at the border here, but uh, let's push out a little. Let's push out and let, let's go a little bit deeper here. And I think he, he's telling his disciples throughout his relationship with them, we're pushing out and we're moving deeper and deeper and you're going to learn more and more about me. You're going to be, you're going to be getting deeper and deeper with me. And I, I, that's what I'm hoping to do here in these next seven things is to push out just a little bit further. Okay, so we, we've begun a relationship with Jesus and now he's intentionally going to start discipling us. So now we need to get ready to push out into deeper waters and go deeper with him. That's where we're going today. Go deeper with Jesus. I want to read you something about his life. Because if we're talking about going deeper and we're talking about John 17, here's what's leading up to John 17. Try to imagine with me the emotions of those last few weeks of Jesus' life. As Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem there in Luke 9, he sent his workers ahead of him two by two. They returned with joy and Jesus was full of joy by the Holy Spirit there in Luke 10. Jesus saw his disciples sharing the good news. He knew three years of investing in them would now yield the intent, the purpose, the fruit of multiplication, right? Jesus makes his way to Jericho. He begins his final ascent into Jerusalem. For the third time, he tells his disciples that he's got to go to Jerusalem to accomplish his mission, to suffer many things, to be mocked and mistreated, to be spit on, to be scourged, and ultimately he's going to die on the cross for us and for them. Mark tells us that those who followed Jesus were fearful because they knew that something was about to happen. And so the disciples are, are, are catching on something big is about to happen. As they make their way to Jerusalem, an uphill journey of more than 18 miles, the crowds in the temple were buzzing. What do you think? Is he coming to the festival? The Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they could arrest him. Stopping in Bethany, Mary boldly announces and anoints Jesus' feet. And that causes a huge controversy among the disciples, doesn't it? As the multitudes heard that Jesus was in Bethany, many went out to him wanting to see Lazarus, whom Jesus rose from the dead. And this caused the chief priests to say, hey, not only do we want this guy, Jesus, dead, but now we got another guy on our list too. Let's kill Lazarus. Making his move toward the Mount of Olives, Jesus mounted a colt. The multitudes were in front of him and many others followed. As the crowds approached the backside of the Mount of Olives, a great multitude that came to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They take branches from trees, palm trees, and went out to meet him. As the two groups met, they crowd out in a loud voice, Hosanna, blessed he who has come in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. We are told that the whole city was stirred there. And Jesus walked down the Mount of Olives while the crowds were rejoicing. This week, filled with teaching, controversy, and conflict, on Monday, Jesus cleanses the temple for a second time, curses the fig tree. On Tuesday, he spends a day confronting the scribes and Pharisees, and many among the leaders believed in him. After the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Jesus predicted the sad destruction of the city. Wednesday, silent day. Thursday, Jesus' disciples prepare the Passover meal. Historic events of the upper room take place. And imagine the emotions of the crowds during this week, the chatter, the discussion, everything going on, the questions. 
Imagine the emotion of Jesus, the emotion of the disciples, the emotion of Jesus' mother, Mary. All of these things coming to a head there. And, and then we get to John 17. As he's praying to his father about what's about to happen, but more importantly, what's about to happen to the people that he gave him. And we get to, to, to listen into a very intimate family conversation. We get to look at a conversation between Jesus and God, which is pretty impressive, if you ask me. A conversation that we don't normally hear. Jesus talking to God and praying for his disciples. Imagine the emotion of Jesus. Imagine the emotion of all of them as they do this. But this is not... I mean, if you look at John 17, the reason... All of that emotion is there. The reason Jesus is praying for them, the reason that the disciples are there is because of everything that happens before. Because of all the time that Jesus invested in them. Because of all the, the, the days and the weeks that they spent together eating and sleeping and talking and walking together. And just pressing the flesh together. In fact, I want you to go over to John chapter 3 with me. John chapter 3 and verse 22. I'll have it up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles with you this morning. John chapter 3, verse 22. The version I have up there says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside. This is after he had the discussion with Nicodemus, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, that word spent some time with means to rub together, to, to get together, to rub you know, literally, they're rubbing flesh together because they're spending time together. It's rubbing the flesh together. It's, it's walking with each other. It's talking with each other. It's just spending time with somebody. And, you know, when I was looking at this again last night, I wrote down in my notes, Joe. Because remembering him yesterday and remembering the things that were said about him, he spent time with people. There was time involved there with the relationships. Jesus spent time with his disciples. Relationships meant something to him. It meant pouring his life into them. And I think that's part of what Jesus wants to reveal in this revealing. The 6 and verse 26 of John 17, the revealing. Let me reveal to you some intimacy. I'm going to reveal God to you. I'm going to reveal me to you through intimacy. In fact, in Mark, go over to Mark chapter 3. And verse 14. Here he appoints the twelve. Early on in the ministry, he appoints the twelve. And he's about to send them out to preach, to go out and teach. And this kind of starts a count of meetings here. And from here in Mark 3, verse 14, you can count how many times Jesus met with the disciples and how many times Jesus met with crowds and crowds of people. Jesus met with, the uh, with crowds and crowds of people 17 times from this point on in his ministry. But he met with his disciples 46 times. And he's spending intimate teaching time with his disciples 46 times that you can, we can at least see in the text. 
probably many more times than 46. And he probably addressed crowds more than 17. But there's a, a different number here in, in, his, in, his, in the way he reaches people. He's reaching crowds, yes, but he's also investing a lot more time in some specific people. Because he's getting them ready, right? It makes sense to me. It makes sense. If you're going to get these men ready to carry on the message, you need to spend time with them. You need to be with them. He reveals himself to his disciples in many different ways. In fact, one of the ways I think he reveals his, himself to his disciples is in Luke 10. Go over there with me. Luke chapter 10. Again, I've got you bouncing around, don't I? Bouncing back and forth. Luke chapter 10, verse 41 through 42. Probably say a lot about this, this, this account here with Mary and Martha. But I think Jesus reveals something very important to these two and to you and I today about what he's already said in Matthew 4.19 about the relationship and about the intent. In 41 and 42, he says, Martha, Martha, you worry and fuss about a lot of things. But there's only one thing you need. Mary has chosen what's better, and it is not to be taken away from her. Martha's works here. Martha's busyness is going to die with her. Mary's, that's not going to die with her. Martha's is so, it, 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 yeah, it's needed. Okay. Sure, you should, you should provide here. But, but Jesus is saying, hey, let's, let's prioritize here. What's more important? What's more important right now? I think Jesus, one of the things Jesus is pointing to is the importance of what's happening right now. Right now, maybe you need to be at Jesus' feet instead of making preparation for meals. Right now, maybe you need to be sitting with me and listening to me instead of doing other things. The relationship that Jesus asks the disciples to pursue is is to pursue him more and more. What did I do? What did I say? This, This relationship with you and me. And I think that's where I've fallen down in my in my walk with Jesus, because this this is a very simple a very simply complex message. It's simple to say, I need you to be more like Jesus. It's more complex to study the man and really be who he's calling me to be. It's a little bit harder than just saying it. He wants me to pursue him, and I need to pursue him. And you know what? If what he did was what he did, then I need to do what he did. And if the way he talked is the way he talked, then I need to talk the way he talked. In fact, I was thinking about it last night. If Jesus came to preach at our, our congregation, I think, at most congregations, we'd probably run him out on rails. If Jesus was Jesus. We'd probably say, you know what, I'm, I don't need that hard-line stance from you. Go take that somewhere else. Because I don't think he'd want us here as much as he'd want us out there. He'd want us doing what he's saying, not just sitting and talking about doing what he's saying. Not that this Sunday is not important. I think the Sundays are important. But at the same time, maybe we sit too much and we don't do enough. We don't do what Jesus says to do. We don't live the way Jesus says to live. I want to read you another little story. It's something that that I was interested in when I was thinking about this lesson because it asks the question, a very simple question, 
And something that I've been thinking about is Bill, is, Bill and I have been talking about things. Um, does anybody recognize that book, In His Steps, Charles M. Sheldon? I want to read you just a little bit about him and then about what came out after that. The earliest instance of a slogan that I want you to, to remember dates all the way back to this book here in 1886 from a series of serial sermons by this American minister here, Charles Sheldon. Each week, Sheldon would tell an entertaining story, posing the question this. I'm not going to tell you yet. Maybe you know. When characters come across a difficult moral decision or situation to increase attendance at his Sunday night sermons, Sheldon would end each story with a cliffhanger, ensuring that people would come back the following week to learn what happens next. These sermons proved to be immensely popular, spurred on by their own popularity. Sheldon got them published in a Congregationalist magazine, and they were soon put together in a book in his steps. Now, this man, as it goes on to say, it kind of describes his philosophy. He was a man that I don't agree with in a lot of ways. He's uh, agreed with uh, Christian socialism, number one, and a whole bunch of other things that I'm not sure that we could have agreed on. But he's... It's interesting, because of that, he wasn't so worried about the book itself and how it sold, and he didn't really get much money from the book itself. In fact, it remained one of the top best-selling, 50 top best-selling books of all time without earning much from it. He was mostly just happy with the message and that that was being spread. More and more people would spend time contemplating Jesus because of it, and he was okay with that, which is a good attitude to have. A few of the publishers who were ranking, raking excuse me, in the dough, thanks to his book, did send him small thank you stipends that amounted to about 10000 total throughout his lifetime, which is probably a, a tiny penny in terms of how much is actually sold. But his message popularized a little further a few years after the publication of his book in 1990 when the editor of a Topeka Daily Capital offered him full creative control. So this message is, is coming back into the mainstream here. So how did this get us to the 1990s and beyond? Because what does anybody know what phrase or what, what thing came out of this book? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? That was what he asked at the end of those things. What would Jesus do at the end of these, these stories? What would he do? And that's where this, this little bracelet comes into play, this what would Jesus do bracelet. An interesting story about that bracelet, too. This, this person who created this thing... Because the book itself, you can't wear the book on your wrist, but you can wear this on your wrist. Uh, what would Jesus do? Much like Sheldon, this, this lady who created this, Janie, um, oh, what was her name? Janie something or other. can't remember her name. Oh, well, Janie. Let's just call her Janie. She accidentally stumbled on a gold mine. Before long, the 300 bracelets, she started off with 300 bracelets. They weren't enough, forcing her to make hundreds more. When the company making them, Lesco, saw how popular they were, they quickly began churning them out, selling millions of their own. So she creates this, and then the company that was making them now is creating them and, and making them on their own and selling them. She's not getting anything for it. Much like Sheldon, she was initially happy that her little abbreviation, the message on it, was spreading like wildfire. However, after seeing a $400 necklace with what would Jesus do on it, she decided to question... Oh, and a, and a what would Jesus do board game. I didn't know that was out there. Uh, she felt like it was getting out of hand and become more commercial than it needed to be. She tried to take control of it, 
and to use the potential funds to start a nonprofit youth ministry. She applied for the trademark, but because it had been out there for so long, they said, you can't trademark it anymore. So now it's out there. The people selling the product with what would Jesus do on it returned sound, uh, soundly ignored her complaints. One of them, the, uh, this one kind of struck me as funny. One of them, the international Christian publishing company Zondervan, did not, did not, uh, did not want to help her out. They've earned millions of dollars from works that essentially twice been stolen from their creators. Neither of them minded much, but boy, to be a be a creator of that, what would Jesus do? And to be stealing profits from somebody else seems the opposite of what Jesus would do. But be that as it may, here here is a popular little phrase: "What would Jesus do?" And it's simple, isn't it? When you come up to a, to a question, "What would Jesus do?" It's so simple, and yet it could be so complex at the same time. What would Jesus do? He wants us to pursue this intimate relationship with him. He wants us to have a a loving relationship with him, doing what he says he revealed to his disciples, the ones that his father gave to him. And Jesus reveals himself more and more. In fact, this is where um, Bill and I were were almost arm in arm this morning in, in verses Luke chapter 10. Uh, let's see, verse 25 through 27. Now, I'm going to give, um, I'm going to give somebody, in fact, I'm going to ask Darren, like, like Bill says in the morning, he's got a good, loud voice and people can hear him. So, Darren, would you mind going to Matthew chapter 9, verse 36? And then, Bill, you've got a good voice, too. So, in, in Luke chapter 10... I want you to read verse 33 when I ask you to, okay? Because in, in verse, Luke chapter 10, 25 through there, he's talking about the Good Samaritan, right? Jesus is answering the question. He's saying, what's, what's important here? The question was, you know, what, what do I, what's written in the law? How do you read it there after the expert says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and the, the man gives him an answer. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But... The guy wanted to justify himself and says, who's my neighbor? Well, you shouldn't ask that question probably. Because now Jesus will tell you. And he goes on in verses 30 through 37 to really give him an answer to who's your neighbor. This is your neighbor. Verse 33 is what uh, we talked a little bit about this morning. And it matches up perfectly with Mark 9, 36. So I want Bill to read verse 33 of Luke chapter 10. And then, Darren, would you read Mark 9, 36 immediately after that? Yeah. Go ahead, Bill. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion on him. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Moved with compassion. Both of those verses talk about being moved with compassion. Bill mentioned it this morning. Mark, um, Matthew 9.36 and Luke 10.33. That is the exact same word being used, moved with compassion. And it doesn't just mean, boy, I'm really sorry that that person is in that, that situation. It means that Jesus was moved so much that it moved him to action. It wasn't just a, boy, I, I see that need. 
It was a, I've got to help. And in Luke 10, 33, the Samaritan sees that need and he is moved so much that he has, has to do something. This is, this is a, something from the inside is moving him. This is that, that from the bowels, you've got to go and do this. This is that compassion that Jesus has in, Mark, in Matthew 9. And, that this, and Jesus says, this, this Samaritan has this. Now, who's your neighbor? And, and Jesus says this, you've got to do this. And this question that Jesus asked, I think, has been wrestled with for, for the ages, right? Who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? When I look out at you, are you my neighbor? Is a guy that looks totally opposite of me my neighbor? Is a guy that believes totally opposite me? Is he my neighbor? Should I help the guy that doesn't believe exactly how I believe? Should I be moved enough with compassion to reach out to somebody who may not even want to come Sunday morning? Yeah. But you see, if, if you and I don't feel the same way that this Samaritan felt or that Jesus felt, then there's, there's something we're missing here. Then, then the revealed Jesus is not really totally revealed in my life. And I, I can't, in turn, reveal him to you. He's revealed himself to the disciples, and the disciples turn around and reveal him to us, and we have to turn around and reveal him to everybody else. But if I can't be moved by this same thing, then I'm not doing what Jesus asked me to do. Why do I do this? Why am I moved with compassion? Why is this Samaritan moved with compassion? Why is Jesus moved with compassion? Why am I? Because I walk with the one who lived in Matthew 9.36. I walk with Jesus, and Jesus was moved. Then I need to be moved. I walk with compassion and live with compassion because I had compassion shown to me. It's, it's really pretty simple. I know the one who would stop. I know the man who would stop and do this. That man's Jesus. Which means that I get to do this, too. Not only get to, I need to. I have to. Because Jesus did it. I need to do it. And what does he say there at the very end to this man in verse 37? He doesn't say, I'm glad we could have this conversation. I hope you learned something today. He says, go and do likewise. He doesn't just leave it with, okay, let's all agree that you should do this. We all in agreement? Great. Okay. Now he says, actually, now go and do it. Put it into practice. Not just understand it, but actually live it. Put it into practice. But for some people of the day, and probably for this guy that here who wanted to justify himself, they're saying, no, 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 we've, we've, we've got the law. We've got this stuff. We, we've got the rituals. We've got this stuff. We're good. We're okay. We've kept the regulations. We've kept the law. We're all right. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You've got to experience me. You've got to know me. That, that gnosis, that, that intimate knowledge. You've got to have that about me. And if you don't know me, you don't know the Father. If you don't know the Father, you're in trouble. If you don't know me, you don't know I'd stop for this person. If you don't know me that I would feed these people, then you're missing something very important. You're missing Jesus. You're missing him, period. I saw on Facebook a question this week. I want to read you the question. And it struck me as something that I have been, been thinking about and, and, and pouring over this week, along with this lesson, but other, other, in other ways too. The question was this. Does your church actively work on clothing the naked, 
feeding the hungry and visiting the imprisoned? Do you actively work on doing those things? I looked at that question and I thought, I immediately said yes. But then I thought, well, where have I done this in the past week or two? Where have I done this in the past month? Where have I fed the hungry? Where have I visited the imprisoned? Where have I clothed the naked? What would Jesus do? Would he do that? Would he feed the clothed? Feed the clothed? (laughs) Would he feed the hungry? Clothe the naked? Would he visit the imprisoned? He pretty much says, yeah, I would. And he asks them, why wouldn't you do that for me? And he congratulates those who do. And he says, you've done it to me. He's asking us to do that. And I, I don't want to be a judgmental person. I, I have been judgmental in the past. I, do, I pray that I am not a judgmental person now. So I want you to take this next comment with a grain of uh, salt, pepper, and anything else you got on you. Salsa, sure. I've met some concrete Christians recently. Some concrete Christians. Thoroughly mixed up and permanently set in their ways. And I think I've been in some of those places before. But I want to challenge you today that this congregation, us as a body here, that we never become people who are so set in our ways that we don't let Jesus work on us. That we don't let him transform us and change us. If we don't sit here and think, man, we've got it nailed. We've got it all. You just need to step in line with, with us. Because I know I've gotten it wrong in the past. I'm not going to tell you which, one, which things I got wrong, but I, I've got it wrong in the past. And I'll probably get it wrong in the future. Because I'm growing and, and I'm learning. And I want you to grow along with me and, and learn along with me. And if we become so set in our ways and so permanently, thoroughly mixed and set in our ways, then, then Jesus is not going to be able to work on me and you. I need to be open to his leading. I need to be open to him molding me and shaping me and making me the person that looks more and more like him every day. And I think that's where Jesus is. When he is talking to his disciples, he's saying, let me mold you. Let me shape you. Keep your hearts open for me because you might think you have all the answers. You might think you've been be doing all the, the things. You've got all your ducks in a row, but you don't quite get it because you don't quite get me. What Jesus came to reveal is not a set of, of do's and don'ts. He didn't come to, to reveal a list of, of wills or won'ts. He came to reveal himself. That's what he came to reveal, him, him personally. Who, when you see him, you see the Father. He came to show you him. And I think it's true. He says, you know, if you love me, you'll do what? Keep my commandments, right? But why do I keep his commandments? Because I love him. I can't love him whom I don't know. If I don't know him, then I can't love him. I've got to get to know him. That deep, intimate knowledge, that gnosis that knowing him then I know that this man does get moved with compassion and he does those things like Bill said this morning when you're walking by someone who's needing food if you're not moved at all or even a little bit then something's wrong now I know we all I've done it too I knee-jerk reaction to the but I don't want to get scammed 
I get that. I think we all get that. And you've got to be discerning at times. Like I've told somebody else before, you know, sometimes I don't know if I'm going to get walked on until I get walked on. And so what if I get walked on? Okay, I learned. But if we don't move with compassion when we walk by somebody who's hurting, then we're, then we're, we're dead inside. We're worried more about dotting our I's and crossing our T's than living like Jesus lived and having him reveal himself to us and then us turning around and revealing him to others. I, I keep his commandments because I love him. I love him because he first loved me. That's why I love him. I love him. And when I don't keep his commandments, when I make a mistake, what's sitting there waiting for me? But the grace of God. Because he knows in his wisdom, Robert's not going to be able to do it. Even with all the work I'm doing on him, he's going to make mistakes. Boy, it's so good to know that the blood of Jesus Christ constantly is cleansing me. Is washing over me. And as I love him because he loved me, I do keep his commandments because he loved me. It's a love that drives us. It's a love that drove him. It's a love that kept him on the cross. And it's a love that keeps him in my life. It's a love for Jesus Christ. I'm immersed in him. I look to him. And I look like him. When I'm raised with him, I look like him. And I have his spirit in me to transform me. And therefore, I do what he did. I say what he says. I'm moved with compassion. And here's where I want you to think about, or here's what I want you to think about this week. In terms of him revealing himself to his disciples, go through the gospel accounts and see how he reveals himself to the disciples. He says in John 17, I have revealed you to them. That's him revealing even himself to them. And I want you to ask him in your prayers this week, in your study this week, in your meditation this week, and even in your relationships this week, to reveal himself to you even more. What do you look like, Jesus? What would you do in this situation? Reveal yourself even more to me. Let me see Jesus. Let me see what he said. Let me see what he did. And then when you find that out, don't be satisfied that you just know it. Do what he says there in Luke 10. Go and do likewise. Because it does me no good to find out, oh, Jesus would feed those people. That's great to know. But that next step is to do what? What is it? To, you can fill in the blank. Feed the people. Okay, I'll fill it in for you. Feed the people. Feed them. That's the next step. Okay, Jesus would do this. Then let's do it. Show it. Go and do likewise. Be that good Samaritan. Feed those hungry. Clothe those people. Show them Jesus. And show them the very best news that you can. Because feeding them, that's going to be great news. That's going to show them the love of Jesus. But when you get a chance to share with them the best news, that Jesus came to die for their sins, man, what more could you want? Jesus loves you so much, he died for you. Jesus loves you so much that he died for you and he lives for you. Let me share the gospel with you as I share this food with you. Let me share the gospel with you as I... Change your tire. Let me share with you Jesus. And maybe you only have a moment, and all you get to do is share the food with them. You've planted that seed. You've done that good, that moved with compassion good. And who knows who's going to follow that up. 
Maybe you get to, maybe somebody else does. But this week, I want you to ask Jesus to reveal himself more and more to you. Ask him. Ask God to say, to to show you in your life where this is what Jesus would do. And then not just to know it, but to do it. Do that this week. Let him reveal himself even more to you this week. Let him disciple you so that you can turn around and disciple others. Do that as we stand and as we sing.